That's what I'm saying. I think I'm right. <laughs> um... Welcome to The Common Law, the best and only podcast about the Minnesota Supreme Court. My name is Mark Thompson. I work at Nichols Castor in Minneapolis, and I clerked for Justices Lilla Haug and McCaig. And my name is Allison Key, and I clerked for Justices Strauss and Hudson. We've got a fascinating case about statutory interpretation and uh, the naming rights for children today. Uh, but before we get to that, let's do some legal news. Um, I've got a quick piece uh from an appearance that uh, Justice Thiessen had in Hutchinson, Minnesota this week. Um, this is from the Hutchinson leader. Um, and he, a, a couple interesting things. Uh, one, he spoke on the issue of access to justice and uh, the lack thereof. And he said, not surprisingly, uh, those people tend to be poor, they tend to be people of color, and they also tend to be people in greater Minnesota. And I think uh, to the extent access to justice is discussed, it often focuses on those first two things. And uh, it was a, a wise move by Justice Thiessen to bring to light that uh, these problems are often quite severe uh, in outstate Minnesota and, and likely, you know, non-metropolitan areas in cities uh, in states around the country, um, a, a relevant thing to bring up. He said, I don't know that I have great answers, but it's a conversation we, we should have. The other notable thing he said was in discussing his role as a Supreme Court justice uh, versus his old role as a legislator. And uh, he talked about how he generally uh, quite likes the new job, but uh, couldn't resist uh, offering another volley in the ongoing kind of uh, shadow debate as to uh, Justice Thiessen's relationship to textualism and the court's approach to statutory interpretation. Uh, he said this, I know legislators don't sit at the Capitol poring over dictionaries. It's important to know that. They're just trying to solve a problem. Uh, rah, rah for Justice Thiessen. One point on the scoreboard for Justice Thiessen. Final piece of legal news this episode is um, a Star Tribune article entitled Minnesota Judicial Budget Request Reflects Impending Wave of Retirements. So the article states that Minnesota's judicial branch is facing a wave of retirements. And the budget request it's sending to the governor aims to make court jobs competitive with other careers in the legal field. Nearly 40% of the state's judges are expected to have retired or be approaching retirement age within the next three years, and a third of all judicial branch staff will reach retirement age in the next decade. So reading this article, it kind of ties in nicely with a piece of legal news we discussed in our previous episode where we talked about the new head of the Judicial Selection Commission, who mentioned that there are plenty of people in the community who should be judges or want to be judges, but just don't know it yet. So maybe this impending retirement of 40% of the state's judges will help get their attention. One other fascinating aspect of this article was that in terms of making the appeal to increase the pay of many of the court's judges and staff, the article notes, Many county attorneys and some of their chief assistants also make roughly 3% more than the district judges they appear before, which is probably slightly embarrassing for the judge that's um, handling cases involving attorneys that make more money than them. So I can understand where the Minnesota judicial system would like to remedy that aspect. 
Yeah, don't have to worry that the public defenders make anywhere near as much money as anyone involved, fortunately. <laughs> Moving on to our feature case, uh, it's got a long title. It's called INRE, Application of JMM on Behalf of Minors for a Name Change. JMM uh, are the initials of uh, a mother in this case who is seeking a name change on behalf of her children. Those are the minors in the case title. And uh, it's a it's a kind of fascinating and underexplored issue in Minnesota law, as we'll hear from uh the amicus attorney that we uh, interviewed, this is a statute that has not been uh, analyzed or discussed very often. And so it leaves the justices uh, kind of in an open field as far as trying to figure out what to do with it. So let's get started with the facts. So like Mark mentioned, uh, the appellant in this case, JMM, is a mother of three minor children, all three of whom share the same biological father. So quoting from actually the Court of Appeals opinion in this case, the factual situation that we have on this record is pretty remarkable. So the Court of Appeals says this, despite his insistence that the children carry his last name, the biological father refused to sign any of the children's birth records as their father as part of his effort to avoid child support liability. The biological father has never paid appellant child support for the children. While she and the biological father were living together, he threatened to harm her and her children if she ever attempted to collect child support from him or leave him. He could have listed himself on the birth certificate, which he refused to do, um, and given the opportunity to sign a recognition of parentage at the hospital for both the first two children, and he declined to do so because he did not want to have any legal responsibility or legal rights relating to the children, and he did not want any responsibilities, but he wanted to make sure that they did not have... Uh, JMM's last name. So Appellant, the mother of these children, then um, ended her relationship with the biological father of these children and moved back to Minnesota. She had been living in Wisconsin, moved back to Minnesota to live with her family when she was pregnant with her third child by that same biological father. So Appellant, mother, and her three children have had no contact with that biological father since she moved back to Minnesota. Council, does the record tell us if um, DG has done anything such as send cards, letters, and gifts to these children? The record does tell us that he has not done any of those things, that there has been no contact with him since the call after the birth of the third child when JMM informed him that that child had been born. So no, no financial support? No. Not attending any school conferences, correct. doctor's appointments, etc.? That's correct. So... Some years later, appellant petitioned a district court to change the last names of her children from the last name that the biological father had insisted that they have, which was his last name, to appellant mother's last name. Three and a half years ago, appellant JMM initiated a name change proceeding in Hennepin County in order to change the names of her three children so that they would have her last name rather than that of her ex-boyfriend, D.G., So appellant mother then applied for a name change under Minnesota's name change statute. But the statute says this, no minor child's name may be changed without both parents having notice of the pending of the application for the change of name whenever practicable as determined by the court. So in the face of this language then, JMM argued to the district court that She shouldn't be required to notify the biological father of her application for this name change. She states that she's the only parent listed on the children's birth certificates, that 
no father has been legally adjudicated as the parent of these children um, that her ex-boyfriend, the biological father, hadn't seen any of these children for over two years by that point. In fact, he had never met the youngest child because she moved back to Minnesota before that child was born and that he never cared for the two oldest children that he did know, that these kids don't know him as any type of parental figure in their lives. So she argues in that way that both parents doesn't apply here. There aren't two parents. She is the only parent. The biological father does not fall within the definition of parents in the statute. And she further stated that under the second portion of the statute, whether it's practicable to provide notice, that because the biological father had threatened her and her kids with bodily harm and threatened to take her children away, it wouldn't be practicable for her to risk her life and safety to give notice to the biological father of the name change of her minor children in this case. Yeah, I think it's, it's important to keep in mind that this is really a case about notice, um, that uh, JMM does not want to provide notice for the reasons Allison's discussed. It's not about whether um, if the biological father objected, uh, the court is likely to grant the name change. I think it's not really discussed, but Based on all the facts you've just heard, uh, it seems extremely likely that a court would grant the name change. But before we get there, uh, we have to resolve this notice issue. So it's important to note, too, that her claims of domestic abuse do have quite a bit of weight here, not just because she made those claims under oath to the district court, but also because in Hennepin County, where she lives now, single parents are required to pursue child support from the biological father's if those mothers receive public assistance. But the mother here applied for and got a waiver from the county itself, from Hennepin County, from pursuing the biological father, specifically because she demonstrated a credible risk of domestic violence if she were to interact with him. Can you tell me if I'm accurate that um, that JM uh, sought and received a waiver for establishing paternity pursuant to receiving public assistance, and that was based on domestic violence? That is correct, Your Honor. Yes, and that continues to be the case. She continues to receive some um, assistance in the form of child care, uh, and that waiver remains in, the family violence waiver remains valid. Um, so Hennepin County has excused her from seeking um, paternity or any co uh, contribution because of the serious and credible threat of violence and control in her past. So on this notice issue then, she had petitioned to the district court that she should fall within the exception of providing notice to the biological father here. And the district court rejected her petition to not notify the biological father of this name change because the district court interpreted that language saying both parents in the Minnesota name change statute to mean biological parents. So there was an initial appeal to the Court of Appeals on this preliminary issue concerning the definition of a parent-child relationship. So the Court of Appeals on that initial appeal said being a biological father was not simply enough to qualify under the both parents language of the name change law. But what's more relevant for us then is that on remand to the district court, the district court concluded that the biological father in this case was still entitled to notice of the name change application because one, he did have a parent-child relationship with those two children, and two, providing notice was in fact practicable, as defined under the Minnesota name change statute, because in the district court's mind, there were ways to adequately address appellant mother's safety concerns. So the Court of Appeals affirmed the district court ruling in an unpublished opinion, and the Court of Appeals agreed with the district court that 
there was a parent-child relationship between the minor children and the biological father that did require notice, and in addition that it was practicable for the mother here to carry out providing notice to that biological father. But in doing this, the Court of Appeals, in this opinion, permitted some of the biological father's more terrible personality traits to somehow factor in as redeeming qualities of him as it related to the question of whether or not he was, in fact, the father. The Court of Appeals first considered the fact that the biological father insisted and required that his children bear his last name. But the Court of Appeals says remarkably that the biological father, quote, did take action at the birth of the two older children to ensure that their birth certificates used his last name, despite not permitting himself to be listed as a father on the birth record. Right. Just what if I point on it, like it's a case in large, broad strokes, this is a case about what uh, effect an abusive relationship uh, and an estranged one might have on the uh surnames of children and the attempts to change them. And here we're using a symptom of an abusive relationship, the uh, forcing of the mother to uh, use the last name of the father as a pro in the column of the father uh, receiving notice. So that was the first aspect in terms of what it means to how the Court of Appeals interpreted both parents in the Minnesota name change statute. And the second aspect of the Court of Appeals opinion was the analysis of the practicability of giving notice to the biological father in this case. So what the Court of Appeals did is at first just look to the dictionary definition of the word practicable and says, well, here the mother knows where he lives. So literally the quote from the Court of Appeals is, appellant knows where the biological father lives and is able to serve him. So that was their analysis of the practicability. Then they continued to say, well, even if we were supposed to consider the possibility of domestic violence and the safety of the mother into this practicability analysis, which apparently their dictionary definition analysis didn't necessarily imply in the first instance. The Court of Appeals majority opinion says that the threats of violence were not barriers to the notice requirement here because they were only threats and he had never before carried them out. So kind of a fascinating analysis, probably pretty clearly divorced from reality, which I think is going to be the main arguments that we hear at the Minnesota Supreme Court. So there are two legal issues on appeal to the Minnesota Supreme Court. One, whether the biological father of the children is entitled to notice of the name change application under Minnesota's name change statute. And two, whether threats of violence against the family rendered notice of the application not practicable within the meaning of the name change statute. So appellant's attorney at oral argument is Catherine Barrett-Wick of Best and Flanagan. Good morning, Your Honors. I'm Catherine Barrett-Wick, uh, and I'm a partner at Best and Flanagan. I'm here today with my co-counsel, Lisa Bean of Robbins-Kaplan, and together we are appellate pro bono counsel for the appellant, JMM. So Ms. Wick is representing JMM, who's the mother in this case seeking the name change. And JMM's argument is that the biological father here is not a parent of these children as required in the both parents language of the name change law. Um, So she agrees with the uh, first court of appeals opinion that the language in the statute, both parents, is ambiguous. And uh, having gotten past that uh, threshold, she's arguing for a legal definition rather than a biological definition of the word parents in that law. We agree with the first court of appeals that the term parent or both parents in 259.10 is ambiguous. Uh, There 
as the court, the first court of appeals found, Black's Law Dictionary has a very broad series of definitions of parent. Um, and we think in this context, it clearly, it is ambiguous and it would be appropriate for the court to look to the definitions and other statutes and the Parentage Act. She encountered a pretty severe resistance immediately from the Chief Justice. I'm having trouble understanding how the phrase both parents can be ambiguous if we look at it as a matter of biology. To me, I think you could argue pretty strongly that that has to mean biology and only biology. So that met a pretty quick rejoinder from JMM's attorney that this case would be easy if the word biological was in the statute, but it's not. That still requires adding the modifier of biology when it is not, that's not in the statute. So it's a choice that the court needs to make about whether to uh, kind of insert that stricture in the definition of the statute. But uh, I think JMM's attorney's argument was that the chief is kind of assuming the answer to the question and and, uh, skipping the work of determining whether uh, biological is going to dictate the terms here. Um, Another problem with this that JMM's attorney does point out is that interpreting both parents in the name change statute as biological parents clearly and quickly leads to some pretty absurd results. That would suggest that in the instance where we did know that someone was a biological parent but that legal rights had been terminated, that that person would be entitled to notice if that is the definition. That would also exclude adoptive parents where we know who the bio, you know, when there's a known adoption and we know an open adoption. And similarly, you know, if if, if you have a known sperm donor, even if all parties to that transaction look at the law and see that the legislature has said that the mother is the legal, sole legal custodian and everyone relies on that, that also, if we interpret the name change statute the way that appointed counsel wants and the way that the court did below, um, that would completely mess the expectations up. So the chief in her response to this question and in her initial question seemed to imply that you can just cure any absurdity that's created with the biological interpretation of parents by using the second portion of the statute. To me, I think you could argue pretty strongly that that has to mean biology and only biology. And then you get into the practicability of providing notice. If you, you, for example, don't know the other side of the biological equation. The last big point that JMM's attorney made is about the word practicable in the statute. So we we discussed the Court of Appeals uh, interpretation of this a little earlier. And I think it's interesting to consider whether there's any daylight between the word practicable and the word possible. Because when the Court of Appeals is talking about, well, JMM knows the location of the biological father's residence, that strikes me as an uh, assertion that it is possible for JMM to deliver notice. It strikes me as somewhat different, and I think this is the case that JMM was making, as to whether, despite knowing the location of his residence, it is practicable. So uh, there's an argument for a fuller definition of that word here. I do just want to say a few words on practicability. Um, In this instance, Hennepin County has deemed that there is a credible serious history of domestic violence here um, and has excused uh, JMM from re-engaging with uh, DG in any way. And that is a credible finding which this court should consider and should make clear can be looked at when determining whether notice is practicable. Um, And we have a very powerful amicus brief uh, on that point. 
So the standard of review here would require that the district court's determination on this practicability question is clearly erroneous. And so JMM's attorney would have to argue that the way that the district court used its discretion to weigh these considerations is clearly erroneous. And so that's what she was trying to argue here. Your argument is the conclusion of the district court was clearly erroneous. Absolutely. I agree with the methodology that there was a weighing, and I think that's the proper weighing that the district court engaged in 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 the practicability to look at the uh, credible threats of violence and the history of control and abuse um, and look at the legal interests. But as a matter of law, put far too much weight on DG's interests in this situation, that is an aspect of the district court's most, the most recent district court's analysis that suggests it doesn't understand the significance and the sophistication of domestic abuse. On the other side of this case, uh, representing respondent in absentia is Michael Boulette of Barnes and Thornburg. Uh, He was appointed to argue this case by the Minnesota State Bar Association because the biological father uh, did not appear in the case. Good morning, your honors. May it please the court, Michael Boulette here as appointed counsel by the Minnesota State Bar Association. So as far as appointed counsel on behalf of respondents' argument goes, even though the Court of Appeals had determined that both parents in the Minnesota name change statute should be interpreted in line with the definitions of parent in the Minnesota Parentage Act, on appeal to the Supreme Court, Michael Boulette on behalf of the respondent in this case states that instead of deferring to that interpretation by the Court of Appeals, both parents is not ambiguous in this case, like the Court of Appeals had said it was. Instead, a plain reading of the term both parents in this case means biology and only biology. The legislature said both parents. And as it used that term in 1951, and as it continues to use that term under a plain language meaning of the word, parent is primarily based in biology, particularly when we have the modifier both giving us additional information. The plain language reading of the statute, potentially supplemented by reading it in pari materia with the Adoption Act, would get the court to a place of, it's biology, and it only needs to be biology. So he states, you don't really need to even consider all the possible permutations of what both parents would mean in all of the um, other situations that JMM's attorney is talking about, because in this case, there is one biological father and one biological mother. And according to respondent attorney's interpretation of the record, similar to the Court of Appeals interpretation of the record, the biological father did in some way participate in those minor children's lives. We don't need to turn to the Parentage Act unless the language in the statute is ambiguous as to this situation. It is not ambiguous as to this situation. DG is the acknowledged biological father of M and D. DG lived with these children, contributed his paycheck to support these children, found them housing, did all the things we expect of a parent under the dictionary definition of that term. So as a first rejoinder, uh, Justice McCaig just disagreed that the facts being cited here support the interpretation that respondent's attorney is giving them. Counsel, what about the fact that he has never introduced these children as his children, in fact, has only introduced them by their name to the community? So there's one side of it that deals with uh, some of the facts here, what the biological father did as a parent, whether he actually provided any uh, reasonable assistance to the children. That's one thing. A separate issue is 
whether uh, the legislature just intended both parents to mean uh, parents from a biological perspective. And I think we can see here there are some seriously deleterious consequences that might flow from an interpretation like that. But nonetheless, uh, it's a court of law, and its job is to interpret the, the statutes on the books. And I, I don't see it as, uh, as much of a closed book as the Chief Justice seems to. But uh, I think there's a serious argument that this is what the legislature intended. They probably didn't think of these consequences, and we might have to look at uh, revisiting the statute. Minnesota's name change statute is by no means the only way we could imagine doing this. One could easily imagine a world in which legal custodians can just change their children's names, and they can do it when they want and how they want and whatever. And, and Minnesota, what my point being that Minnesota's elected to not go down that path. If we simply adopt a plain language approach, though, even a plain language approach informed by the Adoption Act, it may well be that biological parenthood is enough to receive notice under the language the legislature has chosen to give us. I think that counsel has raised excellent points as to why that may be a silly policy. It may be that we want that the legislature should have said it's adjudicated parents, or the legislature should have said it's parents who have taken an active, involved, and ongoing role, but the legislature hasn't said that. So the second main point of respondent attorney's argument to the Minnesota Supreme Court is on the practicability prong. So aside from how we define the term both parents in the Minnesota name change statute, the exception to providing notice for when it is not practicable doesn't apply here. So the respondent's attorney's argument is that the district court properly weighed the safety considerations in this case. There is this overlying question of practicability that, that really does need to be considered. And appointed counsel takes seriously the allegations of domestic abuse and the need to treat it very seriously. I think you have to do with it precisely what the district court did here, which is to take it extremely seriously, to weigh the facts carefully as presented to you, and then to make, and then to make a balancing decision about are the dangers of safety so great here as to render notice impracticable. It said, I accept there may be circumstances where notice would be so dangerous that it shouldn't be given. I find under these facts and these circumstances that it doesn't rise to that level. With all due respect to JMM and her sincerely held beliefs, that was the district court's job, is to weigh those facts. One last point, there were a couple Amici here, uh, both on the side of JMM. Uh, their organization is called Standpoint and Battered Women's Justice Project. Uh, Standpoint was represented by uh, Raina Alexander, who's the executive director there. Uh, and we had the pleasure to uh, interview her, and we'll play that now. All right, and now we are here with Raina Alexander. She filed an amicus brief in this case on behalf of Standpoint, and she was kind enough to join us to answer a couple questions about her organization and the brief she filed in this case. Raina, if you would, tell us about Standpoint and the services that it offers in Minnesota. Yeah, so Standpoint is a statewide nonprofit organization, and what we do is we give legal advice and consultation to domestic and sexual violence victims, to domestic and sexual violence advocates, to the attorney who represents them, and then to other folks. And largely that happens through, um, we have a one number number, and people give us a call, and they ask us legal questions as it relates to the law and as it relates to domestic and sexual violence. So that's what, one of the primary things that we do. We have a lot of training 
Um, we do a lot of technical assistance across the state on legal issues as they affect domestic and sexual violence victims. Sounds like really important work that you and your organization are doing in Minnesota. So what made Standpoint particularly interested in this case with JMM? Um, so we got a call from, um, at the time, the primary attorney was working at uh, Robbins Kaplan, and we got a call um, about the case and wondering if we were interested um, because the language in the name change statute is kind of odd as it relates to changing the name of a minor. And it has this language in there about um, whether uh, contacting both parents is, um, is practical. Um, and so they were interested in our opinion on what we thought about that language. Um, and then also on the initial case, this case went up to the Court of Appeals, came back down, and then went back up to the Court of Appeals, and then to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Um, and so, so at the beginning, the first time we went up to the Court of Appeals, and then also our opinion about um, the district court's statement about how, um, because of the word both parents in the name change statute, that that meant both biological parents, and what our thoughts were about um, how that played out, if that was going to be the definition as it related for domestic and sexual violence victims. So we were asked to come in um, as amicus, and it was something that, as an agency, we've answered a lot of questions on in the past and had provided legal advice on, but we're never really sure if we were right. And it was an opportunity to uh, potentially solidify the law uh, around those issues. So you've kind of talked about this a little bit already, about kind of the primary arguments that you were trying to emphasize to the court, but can you just walk us through, was it primarily a legal argument that you were making in terms of statutory interpretation of the term both parents, or did you guys see your role more as trying to remind the court of the practical realities that you and your organization deal with on a regular basis? brief uh, that uh, we filed with the Supreme Court on this issue, it was more of a, it was, it was, it was twofold. It was a, um, you know, the district court um, does have discretion and the language is in there in the statute. Um, and then B, can we consider domestic violence or sexual violence, depending on the circumstance, as the court is deciding whether or not it is um, practical to not give notice or whether the, whether the practicality goes away um, while giving notice to um, the other, to the alleged party. Obviously, in JMM, we had a, um, an alleged father, a father who, or a, an alleged father who had um, made choices specifically to not sign um, a recognition of parentage who had um, made choices to not have their name on the birth certificate, who had made choices um, to never file any sort of custody or parenting time action. Um, And so uh, that was adding to the concern about what we've had this alleged father who has worked very hard to to not be legally responsible. And then in addition had made threats of violence against the mother and against against mother's family 
And so trying to remind the court that this is the reality that many domestic violence victims live in. So we were, we were doing it twofold and trying to argue the law and the ability of the court to do it. And then um, also reminding the court about what the life is like of a domestic violence victim. So in light of those points of emphasis in your brief, uh, what were your impressions of oral argument? Um, I think oral argument went really well. Um, you know, it was an interesting situation because I've never been involved in a case where there wasn't another party. Mm-hmm. And so the Minnesota Supreme Court had uh, appointed counsel to make arguments for arguably the other side. Um, and so it was a very, like, generically, those dynamics were very interesting to watch, but I thought it was a really good oral argument. You know, it, it felt like there were, you know, certain justices who, uh, who agreed with JMM's arguments, um, and there were certain justices who were a little on the fence, mm-hmm. and then maybe one or two justices that mm-hmm. were on the side of appointed counsel. Assuming that JMM does not end up prevailing in this case, what are Standpoint's next steps in terms of this particular issue? I know that um, appointed counsel in this case did make the argument, oral argument, and in the brief as well, that this may be kind of a bizarre policy for Minnesota, but it is in fact the law and it is the policy that Minnesota has chosen to enact. Does Standpoint have any thoughts about maybe changing the law? Well, the struggle for Standpoint is, is uh, as a 501 uh, C3 organization, we don't lobby and we don't we don't put legislation forward. So, um, and I'm because it's the name change statute, I'm not even sure who that would be who would um, encourage a modification of the name change statute. Um, I definitely think that it should happen because the statute is very unusual as it relates to the name change of minors. You know, the statute starts, the, the sentence starts off by talking about how felons and the process that felons need to go through to change their name. And then there's a comma, and then it talks about changing the name of minors. Um, it's definitely oddly written. Um, uh, I think Standpoint would work with um, somebody if they were uh, wanting to move forward to modify the statute, um, but it, it, that would not be something that would be that would be a Standpoint role. Um, as for JMM, if she does not prevail, she'll have to make a choice on whether she wants to provide notification to continue with that process or if she's just going to leave it alone and wait until the kids are adults and they can change their names themselves. Rena, understanding that uh, Standpoint couldn't be directly involved in any legislative changes in the future, I wonder if this is the first time that uh, an issue with this statute has uh, come up and whether uh, it's ever been discussed before that it might be in need of a rewrite. I am not familiar with anybody who, um, about any discussions about the the oddness of the um, name change statute. Um, you know, there are very few cases in general about name changes in the state of Minnesota. Um, and most of those relate to things like somebody wanting to change their name in an unusual way. Um, I know there are a couple cases about people wanting to change their names to numbers. Um, the court has said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> we actually just had a court, um, a court of appeals decision 
um, about somebody who wanted to change their name and overturning the district court's refusal. Um, but uh, I'm not familiar with anybody or any organization or any group of folks um, who would be, who's tried to push to change the name change statute. So just getting again to one of the arguments you made, your brief makes note of a New York case that your organization thought was particularly relevant for this case. Can you just mention the facts of that case and why you thought it was relevant to this case? Well, the reason, so uh, in my research uh, originally, and so this again, that research does not been the first time we went up to the Court of Appeal, um, but there were, that was the only case I could find, even remotely on point, was this case out of New York, um, where that's uh, and we had, it happened to be a mom, um, and she had a couple of children, and she wanted to change the name of the minor children. Um, there had been pretty significant uh, domestic abuse, um, and, uh, and so she had asked the court to waive the notice requirements that existed in New York law. Um, New York law did not have that kind of goofy language that Minnesota has um, uh, about, you know, if the court decides that it doesn't make sense to provide notice, that you, know, you don't have to. So New York's court ultimately decided that it just could do this, and that's kind of where that practical language came in. The court decided that it just wasn't practical to give notice because of the significant domestic violence that has happened in that relationship um, and that it would put the um, petitioner and the children in so much more danger to provide that kind of notice. Um, and so it was a, um, a very clear example of um, the court uh, finding that, you know, making this practicality argument and applying it even though in their state they didn't have language for that to happen. Um, and so it was it was the argument of they were able to do this in New York even though the language doesn't exist. But here in Minnesota we have this language, so we should follow the example of what New York did and the reasoning behind the New York did. Right. Certainly what stood out to me about that statute in New York is it like you said, it didn't even include an exception to notice to a potential biological father and the court even went ahead and kind of had a more victim-friendly result in that case in spite of it. So I'm glad that your brief mentioned that because I didn't see that brought up in any of the other briefs. And I think the Minnesota Supreme Court does often like to know it's not the first court to kind of push forward on some of these issues. So I thought that was a, a great inclusion. So is there anything else you wanted our listeners to know about your argument or standpoint's perspective in this case? Um, I think one of the things that is interesting about this case that um, I didn't brief in the Supreme Court brief because it was not, um, it, because it wasn't part of the um, reasoning the second time at, court, at the district court level, but the first brief that I did to the Court of Appeals, um, we did make an argument about the, um, the danger that could be if um, the court made a finding that in the, the language of the maintained uh, statute talks about both parents and the, uh, the first district court decision said that both parents meant biological parents. And in that, um, when we were at the Court of Appeals, 
standpoint also argued the significant concerns about using um, biological parent as the definition of parent in this example. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we submitted our, our amicus brief at the Minnesota Supreme Court, we didn't make that argument because it wasn't argued at the district court level mm-hmm. at the Court of Appeals. However, after we submitted our brief, then an um, appointed attorney submitted their brief, and in that brief they really did argue this biological um, that we should see both parents as meaning natural or biological parents. Um, and, you know, we argued it the first time around, but didn't argue it again. But if we do use this definition of biological parent, it can create a lot of concerns for domestic and sexual violence victims. Um, you know, I can think of a couple of cases that we cited in our first brief where you have abuser who has killed the other parent um, and now the county is moving to terminate the person who, the, the, the batter or the abuser's um, parental rights because they murdered the children, in most of those cases, um, um, and the father fighting the termination of their rights, arguing that I should still get to be able to be a parent to this child who I left parent, you know, left mm. house to parent because I killed them. So that child may make me be like, I don't want to have my father's last name because he killed my mom. But if we go with biological, that means that father would have a legal right to notice and to object. It's significantly problematic, especially when we're talking about domestic violence victims. On a similar vein, when we're looking at sexual violence, you may have somebody who is sexually assaulted and ends up becoming pregnant, and they choose to keep that, and, you know, they may at some point decide, so they give the child their last name, and they get married, and that they decide that, you know, the mom and the and the new husband decide that the new husband says he wants to adopt the child and wants to change the child's last name to his. Um, now that mom is going to have to give notice if we use that definition of biological. She has to give notice to the rapist sitting in prison for raping us. That's a significant problem and mm-hmm. a concern that we did raise in our first brief, but we didn't raise the second one because we weren't aware that was going to be a legal issue that was going to be addressed. Well, thank you so much for talking to us here. I know our listeners appreciate it, and we appreciated um, hearing Standpoint's perspective from the lead attorney on the Standpoint brief, Raina Alexander. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So, Mark, who's going to win this case and why? I'm frankly not sure. Um, I think you saw that there were a couple of votes clearly for uh, both sides, and it's not an issue on which you know political leanings are neatly mapped. It's obviously an issue, it's kind of an issue in in which it's a like a practical result versus uh, what some might consider a more legalistic and formalistic interpretation. So, um, I suppose I will lean toward JMM, but uh, I say that with no confidence. I'd probably end up agreeing with that prediction. I think the Chief Justice and Justice Anderson clearly demonstrated that they're probably going to 
come out on the side of the biological father all over the board from the rest of the justices in terms of whether they would agree with JMM on the definition of both parents or on the practicability question. But I do agree that I think other than the chief and Justice Anderson, JMM has five votes here. What do we learn from the case today, Allison? Um, We learned from the case today to never give birth in Wisconsin. Or at least write, ignore the father's thoughts about names in your birth plan. I I think everyone should write that in their birth plan. I agree. Thanks for joining us on another episode of The Common Law. You can check us out at thecommnlaw.com. We've got a free CLE calendar there. You can also go there and claim your credit for listening to this episode. Um, Thanks to our communications directors, Joy and Chloe. And a special thanks to Raina Alexander for lending us her time and thoughts today. Have a nice one, commoners. (laughs) All right, get this TF out of here.